The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. My name is Jade, and today I'm sitting down with nutritionist Sarah Burnesh and mental health advocate Lexi Smith to talk about the complexities of orthorexia and what the eating disorder recovery process is really like. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's first guest is Sarah Burnesh. Sarah is a nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor based in Toronto. Sarah utilizes in her practice and teaches about the non-diet approach to nutrition and combines intuitive eating with several counseling frameworks and theories in her private practice. In our conversation, Sarah talks about what orthorexia is, why it's not yet in the DSM, and more about the debate around this eating disorder. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for being here today. Jay, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Before we get started um, and into the topic of today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yeah, so I'm a Toronto-based registered holistic nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor. I'm also a writer, and I work Um, especially with disordered eating and body image concerns, 
most recently, I really specialized in helping people who have a sexual abuse history to have a more peaceful relationship with food. So that's typically what I do is just really helping people to unhook their worth from their weight and to have a relationship with food that feels ultimately pretty supportive. Yeah, that sounds, that's really interesting um, how you're working with people who have experienced sexual abuse and, and food. I think that's not like a relationship or correlation that people make very often, that yeah. that kind of trauma can affect your relationship with food. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that um, in the eating disorder world, it's always on a back burner, right, that we think about it. But when it comes to dieting or other eating difficulties, it's not necessarily addressed in the same way. And it's something that I was finding a lot of people were coming to me with and saying, like, I have this history, and I also struggle with my relationship with food, I'm not sure how they're related. And so then it became um, an area of focus for me to really help people to better understand that connection and how it might be showing up. Great. Um, So can you talk about like, what inspired you to start working in the eating disorder field? Mm -hmm. And so like so many other people, I have my own history. I struggled with disordered eating for about 15 years or so. And so that was part of what got me into it. And at the same time, I never really anticipated going into eating disorders work. I initially went to school for creative writing and English, and I thought I might teach or work in publishing or something like that. And I just eventually made my way into nutrition because I really loved to write and I loved food. And it seemed like an area that was really interesting and that would combine both of my interests. And so I got into nutrition counseling. And from there, it just became something that that drew me towards it. And so I was someone who read all the memoirs and watched the Lifetime movies on eating disorders growing up. Um, I don't recommend doing that. And then um, eventually, once I finished nutrition school, I started working for a private eating disorder center. And so from there, that just became the work I ended up doing. And, um, and it stuck just because I've always found it really interesting. Eating disorders are really complicated. There's a lot to know. And there's a lot of depth. And so I think given all of those features, it was always something that kept me really um, kept me motivated to continue learning. And so that's how everything kind of came to be. That's really interesting. I, I do find a lot of um, people who work with people struggling with eating disorders have a history of an eating disorder or disordered eating. Um, and I feel like just recently in the past few years, providers who have uh, experience with that are like now feeling comfortable to talk about it. I feel like a few years ago, it was like, don't talk about your experience at all. But now that some providers are getting more comfortable, I feel like that provides patients with a more relatable person that they're getting treatment from. Yeah, I totally, I I completely agree with that. I think in in the past, at least my experience has been that people felt they need to be really neutral and impersonal and not share too much or disclose. And I think we are seeing changes where people are realizing, where practitioners are realizing that a big part of the healing that takes place in the room has to do with the relationship and the ability to feel safe and cared for. And I think um, it does help people to feel safe when they understand the person they're sitting across from has been in their seat before and has 
undergone similar experiences. I do think that's really comforting. And so I'm starting to see a shift in that too, where it is a lot more relational and a lot more um, honest as opposed to this idea that the other person needs to be an unbiased participant. I think it's a good change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when you like introduce yourself and talk about your titles, you say you are an anti-diet nutritionist and a holistic nutritionist. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that means? Yeah. Uh, so I think to me, I think, you know, if you ask 15 people, you'll get 15 different answers on what anti-diet means to them. To me, at least it means three main things. And one that I believe that all foods can fit into a healthy diet. And so in keeping with like, you know, if we think about health at every size, um, which like that could take up a whole other episode to talk about. But one of their main tenets is that people get to make decisions with their food that really honors, um, you know, that's flexible, that's pleasurable, uh, that's individualized, um, that we were promoting um, eating based on hunger and fullness and all of that and individual needs. And so when it comes to being an anti-diet nutritionist, I really think it's important that I'm not pushing my value system on anyone else or, or telling them what they need to be eating or food policing in any way. I think it's really important that we respect cultural differences and the foods that people want to eat. And, and so a big part of that to me is, is doing that. So we often see nutritionists, um, especially holistic nutritionists, really endorsing um, like clean eating, quote unquote, or um, certain types of foods over others, or you know, saying you, you need to eat like gluten-free or you need to have like organic dairy and these types of things. And so for me, a big part of being anti-diet means not pushing that on anyone else. Um, there are people who choose to eat a vegan or vegetarian diet for ethical reasons. Um, there's a number of reasons why people might not choose to eat certain foods, but I think that really needs to be uh, addressed in, on an individual basis. So that's one thing. And another piece around being anti-diet is being weight inclusive. So I never push the intentional pursuit of weight loss on anyone. I don't offer intentional weight loss. I really help people to cultivate health habits and behaviors that are supportive to them. And so eating in ways that that feel good, moving in ways that feel good, if that's applicable, um, and taking care of themselves in the best ways that they can in their individual circumstances, recognizing, of course, that you know, our behaviors are not always within our control. If you have, if you're like a part-time worker and, or a shift worker, um, you know, you're not going to bed at 10, 10 PM. Right. And so we're just trying to do the best we can with our own individual circumstances. And so that's a big piece of it as well of like, not, not pushing weight loss on people, anti-diet in my mind should mean, um, weight inclusive. Um, and so that's another piece of it. And then third for me, is constantly doing the work to unlearn my own biases and being able to show up um, with as few biases as possible. So continuing that work. And so it doesn't look like that sort of colonial, typical relationship where you have like this expert and then you have this other person where we're collaborators in the room working towards a shared goal. So that's all the work that I, that I think about when we hear the term anti-diet. I think it's a little like concerning that that's not something that all like nutritionists kind of adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also something I've noticed is people kind of shifting more into the anti-diet space, which is really encouraging. Yeah, I think so too. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so this episode is focused on orthorexia. So that being said, can you talk about what orthorexia is, what it looks like, how long we've known about it, and you know, some of the history behind it? For sure. Um, what I would say when it comes to orthorexia, um, I think it's important that people know it is, it's a term that was coined in the late 90s by Dr. Stephen Bratman to describe what he was experiencing in his patients who were like really preoccupied with, you know, super healthy eating and were experiencing really serious health consequences due to that really rigid attachment to pure or clean eating. It's loosely defined as an unhealthy obsession with healthy eating, but it's not currently recognized as a diagnosable eating disorder and there isn't any diagnostic criteria. So in that in that way, it's really tough to quantify the issue or to really know how many people are really struggling. The estimate from what I gather from the studies is somewhere between six and 90%. So there's like a huge, um, that that's huge, right? So we can't really know exactly how many people are really struggling with orthorexia. Um, but just because it isn't a clinical eating disorder doesn't mean it shouldn't be taken seriously. I've known a number of people who've really struggled with their obsession with really rigid eating, you know, this attachment to pure eating. And certainly it can progress into anorexia if it isn't caught early enough, um, especially as foods continuously get get eliminated and reduced and malnourishment sets in. That certainly there are folks um, who've been who've experienced what we would what we think of as being orthorexia, who are given di the diagnosis of anorexia because of how few foods they end up eating in the end as more and more foods are removed. And certainly in some cases of anorexia, people may cling to orthorexia in their recovery as a way to continue to gain control over the situation. And so I've known folks firsthand who have a history of anorexia and then became more obsessed with like clean eating or healthy eating in their recovery and then sort of continued to spiral that way. And so there definitely is a lot of overlap between the two. And so orthorexia really is this obsession with purity and, and that's how I would characterize it. So can you talk a little bit about anorexia and like what the distinguishing factor is between orthorexia and anorexia? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I would say, as I mentioned, like there is a lot of overlap between the two. And sometimes, you know, they do go hand in hand. The main differences, as I would, I would say, are that orthorexia has more of, there's more of an obsession with purity or with cleanliness when it comes to eating versus anorexia. It's more eating for weight loss or eating to maintain a certain weight. And so folks with anorexia may have some fears around calories or carb counts or fat grams, things like that. Um, versus with orthorexia, it really is more about the purity of the food. I would say that in anorexia, the behaviors are far more hidden that typically folks with eating disorders, clinical eating disorders are looking to hide their behaviors. When it comes to orthorexia, because the well, like the wellness industry is so very accepted and celebrated orthorexic tendencies tend to be praised and glamorized. And so it is a little bit more outward where if someone's like a super clean eater, quote unquote, then that tends to be um, seen as like a, as virtuous in the group. And so that might be a bit more outward. 
People with anorexia have a greater tendency to skip meals or to eat less at meals versus people with orthorexia may continue to eat all of their meals. They may, it's very possible that they do eat an adequate amount of food. It's just that there is that purity component and that rigidity that's there. Um, that said, people with orthorexia may engage in like fasting practices as part of their purity rituals. And so it's not necessarily the case all the time. And when then, too, when it comes to getting support or treatment, people with anorexia may resist that or may, may feel really cautious and hesitant to engage in treatment because they don't want to gain weight and the fears around weight versus people with orthorexia, their fear is more about um, being unhealthy or, or being asked to do things that they deem unhealthy. And so the, there's some differences there between the two. That that makes sense. I think it was interesting when you said that some people tend to kind of shift into orthorexia after um, getting some treatment for anorexia. I feel like that's a really important thing to kind of note is a potential kind of result um, after getting treatment. Because I just know with, with my experience, the period like after being in like intensive care and like being home for the first time and having to do all of the things that people were doing almost for me for myself was like really hard and it was like keeping one toe in the eating disorder and one toe out of the eating disorder so I think that's really interesting that like that's a trend that's being seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that the same happens to that um, we've seen in diet culture, the shift from more conventional like diet diets to more like wellness focus. And I think that's really confusing for a lot of people. And it's confusing to an eating disorder recovery of going from a place of like, we know this is a clinical diet, like diagnosable eating disorder, or we know this is like a clinical, like this is like a, you know, a, a regular diet. We know this is a diet. We know what it's for. And then shifting more into this like really blurry territory of, well, is this a diet or is this about health? And I see this to my practice where people are really confused um, and they, they tend to get conflated where diet culture and health have sort of collapsed into one another. And there's an assumption that, well, I'm doing this because this is the healthy thing, as opposed to actually, this is this is a diet behavior. And that's true too, for eating disorder recovery, where there's an assumption that, well, I'm just doing, I'm just eating healthy, right? But we both know that that's a really slippery slope. And when we start to engage in habits and behaviors in the name of, of health, right? And I'm using that like, quote unquote, um, that that can tend to be, that that can tend to lead back into really disordered behaviors very easily, especially for folks who are susceptible. Yeah. And, and so while talking about all of this, you use the term intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about what it means to eat intuitively? Yeah. I think that intuitive eating is a term that is misunderstood largely by the population to mean instinctual. And I don't think they mean the same thing. I think when we're talking about intuitive eating, as in the um, an intuitive eating practice, as in the principles and the modality that were put forward, um, we're talking about the work of Elise Rush and Evelyn Triboli. They put together a modality about intuitive eating. And what it means to eat intuitively is really to eat according to hunger and fullness cues for the most part, to choose foods that honor both your taste preferences and your body's needs, to be able to um, 
to eat in a flexible, pleasurable kind of way. And so it really is this um, ongoing relationship between your, like, the different parts of your brain. So like your emotion, like in, in terms of like reason, emotion and instinct, you're combining all three together. So it's not just like eating what you want when you want, although I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. Um, I think it's more about um, noticing what it is that you want and your preferences and also considering your different needs too. So if it's, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon and you're getting like, maybe you're feeling hungry for lunch. Uh, part of you probably knows that just eating like an apple is probably not enough food. I'm using this as a very basic example, but you're like, well, no, like that's not going to be enough to, to tie me over. I need something more than that. Um, and so like, just that's as, as one example of knowing, like, I know in my system that that's not going to be enough, that maybe I need like an apple and a sandwich and maybe something else. Um, and I probably need a snack later and, and, um, and making those decisions based on your body's cues. I guess I wonder, because like for me, I didn't hear about intuitive eating and hunger and fullness cues until I was getting eating disorder treatment. Um, and so I guess I just wondered, like, why is this not something that we're talking in all spaces where we're addressing eating and healthy ways of eating? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I think it's something that's that we're hearing more and more about all the time. I think intuitive eating is like, yes, it's trending. And also I think we're ready for that revolution where so many of us are tired of diet culture and tired of being told what to do with our bodies and are looking for a way out of that system and really looking to opt out. And I mean, some of the reasons I can think of is that the diet industry is a, a billion dollar industry. It makes a lot of money. I think there are a lot of people who are fearful of losing their livelihoods if we moved away from dieting. I think speaking of my industry in particular, there are folks who are nervous about not offering weight loss because they fear losing, again, you know, losing money um, and not being able to sustain their livelihoods if they were to do a non-diet approach. Um, and so there is a lot, there's a lot there, right? Like if you're talking about an industry that's highly profitable. And a lot of other industries that are very invested in upholding that, um, it is really tricky. Like we're not just talking about our food at the end of the day. We're talking about, you know, the cosmetic industry like and fashion industry and, um, and like the fitness industry, these different industries that are also like they all benefit from dieting being paramount and from people hating their bodies or wanting to change their bodies. And so it would be, it's, it's challenging to to really start to shift that because it is such a beast. Yeah, it is. I agree. Um, I I have a question that's kind of going back to when we were focusing a little more on orthorexia, but has, um, because you said that the, the term was coined in the 90s, um, but I feel like, at least for me, I haven't really heard about it. I feel like it wasn't really more mainstream until like the past five or so years. So have cases of orthorexia increased? And is that why we're hearing more about it? Why why is it becoming more talked about now? Mm -hmm. I think that's a great question. I don't know if cases have increased or not. I mean, because again, going back to like, we don't have uh, any diagnostic criteria. But what I can say is like, if we even take a look around, I, I think that from my vantage point, 
the wellness industry has gained a lot of ground that things that were once on the outskirts that just like the nutrition community were participating in have now become a lot more mainstream. Like if we think about juice bars or superfoods or products like that, I remember a time when those were very fringe and it was difficult to come across them. And the only people that were consuming them were people who were like quote unquote hippies or people who were very granola and looking for that. And now I think, uh, especially in the past few years, that's become a lot more mainstream. We see the the rise in you know juice bars for one thing, but also these like more um, quote unquote clean eating establishments. Um, certainly we've seen the rise in specific diets that cater towards that. And so I think that combination has really been instrumental in, in seeing the rise in um, in, in sort of more orthorexic practices or, or practices that we would see as being orthorexic. Um, so I think that's probably a big piece of why we're just starting to hear about it now versus before in the past it was, um, I think these are conversations were mainly limited to people in nutrition groups versus now, I think it's just a lot more widespread. And is there like a specific reason why it's not in the DSM yet? Um, I think, I mean, what I've been told is mostly that it is, it's a new diagnosis. It's like a new, well, it's not a diagnosis, but like it's a new term, right? So it's for a lot of eating disorders, it, it, it took years and years and years for binge eating disorder to even be entered into the DSM. So unfortunately, even though it has been a considerable length of time, I mean, the term came out in 96, 97, we're in, you know, 2021 now, um, but it does take time for change to happen. And so that's part of it. And I also think there's a lot of debate too in the community. There are people who don't feel that clean eating is an issue. There are, you know, there's plenty of people who view this as like, this is just healthy eating, right? This is just something that you do for your health and it isn't a problem. And so I think it's tricky in that way because there isn't clear consensus on this. There's certainly many people who have issue with it, who can see how that intense rigidity is a problem. And just as many people saying, well, what's the big deal? And so it is really challenging, I think, in that way. Like, I can't speak to why or why not. It's, it, you know, like why it's not in the DSM yet, why it's not um, a clinical eating disorder. But I know in the field, in nutrition in particular, there's a lot of debate over whether it should be included. Yeah, and I, I, I guess because my thinking is just like um, for like treatment purposes, mm-hmm. um, how will people who... Cause, cause like you were saying, like this could potentially transition into anorexia and mm-hmm. then like, what can we do to stop it before it gets to that point? Like, I yeah. Wonder how. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, I think this is, um, part of a longer, like a bigger conversation too, around eating disorders in general, like how do we prevent eating disorders? How do we prevent the progression of eating disorders? Um, and I think this is a really challenging topic. I think when it comes to orthorexia, I think really building awareness is important. Like having people on podcasts and having these conversations, I think is really important. I think the growing anti-diet movement and the, the popularity of intuitive eating, um, that's really helpful as well. I know the, on Instagram, the anti-diet community has been really helpful for a lot of people there too, on raising awareness of the concern with food restriction of any kind, including taking out certain foods for health reasons or as part of clean eating. And so I do think that we're starting to see some changes happen. And so I think education and awareness is key to preventing cases from occurring. And I think 
Um, also allowing for all body types to exist, I think is really important too, that body image is a piece of any conversation when it comes to food. And so allowing again, like continue to celebrate and praise people for the bodies that they are in and not asking them to change their bodies or promote dieting types of behaviors, I think is really a key to it as well. Yeah, and I think I agree that the anti-diet community on Instagram has gotten like a lot more, a lot bigger, which is helpful since Instagram is so, was so saturated with just fake photoshopped pictures of people and no one really being honest about the fact that they were photoshopping those pictures, but that even that narrative has changed now. So Mm -hmm, I do mm -hmm. think it's getting better, but I do also feel like Instagram and spaces like it are still where a lot of, it's almost like a breeding ground for things like orthorexia. Yeah, that is a challenging thing too, right? I agree with you and that it's really difficult, especially on Instagram. You look at these curated feeds where there's like all these smoothie bowls and like perfect salads and like, just um, one foods that a lot of people don't eat uh, in the ways that they're being presented. And two, I don't know about anybody else, but my meals never look that nice. Like it's like, you know, a sandwich that's put together quickly and then eaten at my table or something. And so I think that because there is, um, there's like so many very stylized food photos and there is like this push of like, look at this smoothie bowl or, or this smoothie bowl. It can make it seem like one that's all people are really eating are these like types of foods versus, you know, you don't necessarily see like the pizza that's eaten with friends or the hamburger that's grabbed on the run. And so I think that sets us up to have this very unrealistic expectation for how our own eating behavior should be versus I think it's important to feature different types of foods and different ways of eating and have them not be overly stylized just to really normalize those behaviors that it is like totally okay if you're just grabbing a peanut butter sandwich and throwing it in your bag for work like the most important thing is that you're getting your needs met and you're eating enough not that you're having you know like the smoothie bowl with like these perfectly carved out melons or like these kiwi fruit flowers or like things i don't even know how to do um so i think that Instagram, right, you, you know, you're right, like, there's either, there's like the, the pro and con to that, which is like, it can be really helpful at helping people to access support and resources that they need. And also, there is this dark side too, where there's like a lot of like, um, really stylized photos, I don't know how else to put it, that really glamorize fruits and vegetables and like nothing else. And that also really celebrate and elevate certain bodies over others. And, and I think, as time goes on, I think it'll definitely get better. But I, I feel like it's also important to have conversations like this along with that for educational purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's all of my questions. Um, before we end, can you let my audience and I know how we can stay up to date with you and the work that you do? Yeah, so the best way is um, I have my website, sarahbernesh.com. And I'm also on Instagram, although infrequent, at Sarah B Nutrition. So those are the two main platforms that I use. Um, and I also send out newsletters sometimes. So it's helpful to sign up for that so you can get any of that information as well. Great. Thank you so much for being here. I think this will be a really helpful conversation. I think this could be helpful for people who don't even uh, like know about eating disorders because it's 
very much an eating disorder with behaviors that are very woven into society and like just normal life. So thank you for being here and providing all this great information and insight. Yeah. And thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Our second guest is Lexi Smith. Lexi is a mental health advocate and student working to get a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Lexi has created a presence online following her recovery from an eating disorder. She's been using her Instagram account to educate her followers about orthorexia and other eating disorders and mental health in general through colorful graphics and videos. Lexi is also the host of the Every Ounce podcast, where she has conversations with mental health experts and advocates about mental health and wellness. Hi, Lexi. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, For everyone listening, I was on um, Lexi's podcast, and it was the first podcast I was ever on. Um, And it was really cool to have the roles reversed, so I'm excited to be the interview and you be the guest this time it's always so fun I did that one of the first podcasts that I was on I had her come back and be on my podcast and doing like little podcast switches is so fun just being on both ends it's so much fun I love it so I, I appreciate you Jade yeah so before we get into the main topic can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do Yeah, so my name is Lexi Smith. I um, am a psychology student at Utah Valley University. I will graduate next spring with my uh, bachelor's in clinical psych. And then um, from there, I'll probably go on to get a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. Um, A little bit about myself. I love to do yoga. I play the piano and I love doing that. Um... Let's think. I also, I honestly just love, like, hanging out with friends, family. I love driving in my car, finding new places, listening to music. That's me. So nothing nothing too crazy exciting. <laughs> but um, that's kind of me in a nutshell. And then I'm, I'm from Utah, still living here. And I focus on eating disorder advocacy and recovery. And I will eventually specialize in eating disorder treatment. 
Great, that's awesome. I find that a lot of the people that I um, have been in treatment with, including myself, choose to take the path of like being some type of mental health worker mm-hmm. after going through that. So I think right. it's really cool that you're pursuing that. I'm excited, and I feel like what would I have done with my life if it weren't have been for this experience that I have been through. So I'm incredibly grateful and just um, hopeful that my story can inspire other individuals because fortunately my story is one of great hope and um, not every story with an eating disorder is. And um, so I'm hoping that, that that can instill some validation and encouragement in those that are still in the midst of their battle. Yeah, and, and I think we need more uh, examples of stories um like ours to help people you know see that there's hope (laughs) and that it doesn't have to be like a constant cycle so speaking of you know your your journey can you give us like some background about your eating disorder recovery journey and um, a little bit about where you are now in that journey yeah so if we just want to kind of jump right in I started to develop an eating disorder probably around the age of 15-ish. <laughs> There's really no clear start date for that, but it was about January of 2017. Looking back through my journals, it looks like that process might have started a year or two before that. Um, but January of 2017 is really when it started to kind of, to kind of kickstart. And um, I just had a, a goal of being healthy And I was going to do that by exercising more and eating better. And it was very vague and that's all that I really tried to do. And I had a fitness tracker at the time. And so I tracked everything on my fitness tracker. I tracked when I, the foods that I ate, I tracked the water, my water intake, my weight, which I was checking three, four, five times a day. Um, All of the exercise that I was doing, it tracked my sleep. I honestly don't know when I even charged my fitness tracker because it was just constantly with me. And um, eventually this process just kind of started to spiral out of control. I don't honestly really know where and where things went haywire um, because the whole process for me was so rational and so healthy and it was all so... Um, just admired by like health instructors that I had learned from my teachers. This was what I was taught to do. I was taught to eat healthy and exercise more and move my body and track my and, you know, write down what I'm eating and, and this this type of thing. And eventually my brain and my body just did not want anything to do with this it was it was just uncomfortable and I was miserable and and I was to a point where I was like well now what what do I do and and I think there came a point when I knew that I was struggling with an eating disorder because it wasn't normal this was abnormal and I could see the distress and the dysfunction in my life but I didn't know what to do about it I didn't want to just walk up to someone and say hey by the way I think I have an eating disorder and and go through that whole process and so I just kept going down the same path because I knew nothing else and I didn't have the words to describe how I was feeling internally or mentally that were kind of underlying my eating disorder that I didn't recognize years years before and so I was formally diagnosed with anorexia on December 9th of 2017 and I was immediately admitted to primary children's hospital here in Salt Lake Um, there I stayed for six days 
which was a very interesting experience. It was very boring. There were times uh, when I was just super stressed because I knew I was sitting there missing school. I was missing the PSAT. I was (laughs) missing so much that was going on that week. um, And I had no idea how long I would be there. So it was possibly two days. It was a week. It was two weeks. I had no idea. And there were times in the hospital when I was super positive and happy and some of my personality started to shine through. I would talk to the techs that were there and do some crafts. I know I painted pumpkins, watched movies. Um, My family came to visit and that was really great. And then there were other times when it was like World War III over in applesauce and um, my poor healthcare techs and and doctors and everything, dietitian, everybody was just struggling to even get me to do anything. I wanted to go on a walk so bad that I was so defiant um, to eat and just just do anything. It was a very, very miserable process, Um, but they took great care of me there, and uh, Primary Children's will forever have a special place in my heart. Um, there I also received an NG feeding tube that went up my nose and then down my throat and into my stomach. And I left the hospital with that feeding tube and I did home health care after that. So a nurse came to my house and kind of set it all up for me. And then my parents kind of took charge. And every night I would do my feeding tube, set it up by the, the edge of my bed and, and it would um, give me that nourishment throughout the night. And then on top of that, I had a full meal plan. Um, with exchanges and, and, um, you know, snacks, everything. It was, it was so much for my, my poor brain and body at the time that was, they had just gone under so much restriction. And then I was meeting with a dietitian regularly through primary children's outpatient services. That was about every week to every two weeks that I was meeting with her. And then I had a specialized eating disorder therapist based out of Salt Lake as well that, um, I met with weekly. And then my pediatrician was kind of the communicator between everybody, and I met with her about once a month, and then those eventually started to spread out. But I had that feeding tube um, every single day, 24-7. I wore it to school. I had it on Christmas morning. I had that from October 9th when I was diagnosed until February 7th when it was finally removed. Um, And that was because I had met my goal weight, and I had started following my meal plan pretty consistently. Um, And so that was removed, and eventually... I was able to reach weight maintenance, which I have no idea what that number was for me, but um, I got to a point and to a better better headspace um, in my recovery. It was a very complex process and a very tricky process, and there's so much that goes into it that individuals outside of eating disorder recovery don't even think about. And um, eventually I was able to recover, and about a year after my diagnosis, I kind of self-proclaimed myself to be fully recovered, um, which in the eating disorder world is extremely fast, and I'm incredibly grateful for the care that I was given, that my eating disorder was able to be caught early so that I could have a fast and full recovery. Um, And I've been fully recovered ever since, Um, and I'm today in a position where I am super active on social media about eating disorder advocacy. I do a lot through the National Eating Disorder Association, helping with events and legislative things like um, pushing for eating disorder prevention in schools acts and um, joining advocacy teams for walks and raising fundage and awareness um, for eating disorders. And then also just a big part of the mental health community, taking down stigma around mental illness. Um, and finding the validation for individuals that are struggling with the diagnoses. 
So just a lot that's going into that. And then eventually, hopefully, I'll have my own practice specializing in eating disorder treatment and, and using what I've been through to kind of do some good in the world. So that's where I'm at right now. That's great. Um, the, the part of your treatment where you described where it was like one day you could be like very happy, very positive, and another day just it, it was like the hardest thing that you've had to go through. I think that's something that's really um, most people in eating disorder treatment can relate to that. And I know for me, th- that in itself, d- amongst all the other stuff, that was hard because it was like, why, why on this day is it easier? But on this day, like it feels hard to even like get up and want to do any of this. Right. And I think yeah. after my after I got a diagnosis, in my mind, I was kind of like, OK, it's downhill from here. Mm-hmm. I was like, I've struggled, I've struggled, I've struggled. And now I'm going to receive help. And I'm so excited and I'm so grateful for that and little did I know what was coming and and it it honestly like my stubbornness my um personality my defiance honestly probably got worse before it got better and um that's hard for caretakers that was hard for my family and my friends to see and for me to kind of question if there was light at the end of the tunnel in this process and so um, getting through the worst of that right after my diagnosis and the beginning of my recovery is probably the hardest part for me, but eventually recognizing that recovery was so worth it and that it was so real is so beneficial. Yeah, and I just, I appreciate how honest you are about the experience. I feel like there's a lot of people, um, especially on social media, talking about the diagnosis and then skipping all the like nitty-gritty in the middle Mm -hmm. um but that's you know the reality of it is that it's not a pretty process going through eating disorder recovery and I think it's important to let people know that it's gonna be really hard but there's still hope and so many people have gotten to a point of being recovered or being able to manage their symptoms very well Right. And I think a lot of times eating disorders are sometimes glorified. Like I've, I know individuals have previously said, oh my gosh, I wish I had that problem. Like I wish that was my struggle. And I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. And it's, it's just, it's just so much more complex and so heartening that you don't understand until you're in those shoes and how hard it is on your body and how hard it is on your mind and on your spiritual you know side of yourself and and it's just it's a really daunting process and I think that eating disorders are looked at as like a selfish illness or a choice or something that would be a great problem to have but it's just not yeah and I think that's a Good segue into my next question, because I know for me, um, I had very little knowledge and was pretty, like, ignorant around eating disorders up until, like, I was, like, forced to have to go into the hospital. And I was very much, even despite all of my just knowledge and sensitivity around mental health in general, because I'd been getting mental health treatment for a while before that, but I, I didn't realize the complexity of eating disorders. So I'm wondering for you, uh, what was your knowledge about eating disorders before you were diagnosed? I think my knowledge was very small, just like what they teach you in, you know, eighth grade health class. 
I think we covered eating disorders for like half a class period throughout the entire semester. And uh, I remember taking guided notes and being like, anorexia is when an individual starves themselves because they're ashamed of their body image. Bulimia is when an individual binges and then purges, they eat and then they throw up because they're worried about being too fat or... Uh, and I honestly think it was really only those two that were covered was anorexia and bulimia. And that's about as much general information as I got. There was nothing about the psychological effects. There was nothing about the physiological effects of what's going on. There was nothing about the signs and symptoms. There was nothing about the treatment. It was just, this is what this is. This is a thing. And here's the definition of it. And I didn't really think much about it. I didn't have any need to at the time. I had no, I didn't know anybody with an eating disorder. I didn't have friends. I wasn't struggling when I first learned about eating disorders. I had no idea that I was even at risk for one because of my, um, how I grew up and the environment that I was surrounded in and the other mental health conditions that I had underlying. I had no idea. And I, I wonder if I would have gotten more specific and more education in school, would I have developed an eating disorder to the extent that I did? Or would it have been able to be caught early on, earlier than it was? And would I have had to have struggled so much? And there's no one to blame for that except for uh, society as a whole and the system of education as a whole. And um, I was incredibly privileged throughout my childhood and my upbringing and even still today I, I live with so much privilege and um, I don't take that lightly and I think that looking back at my opinions of eating disorders before I had one and even when I was first diagnosed I remember after I was first diagnosed me thinking oh my gosh when people find out that I've been diagnosed with anorexia they're gonna think this 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 and this that I thought that I thought previously and I thought that it was something that you kind of chose to do. You refused to eat because you just didn't want to. Um, I didn't understand the psychological things that were going on. I didn't understand what it was like to be in their shoes. I didn't understand that eating disorders didn't discriminate, that it wasn't only for white, young, teenage girls like myself. I, d I had no idea. And I didn't know that it wasn't a choice. Um, I thought that an eating disorder was kind of something that you slowly chose to do and then it kind of just became habitual, which in a, in a way it, it does become habitual, but it's definitely not a choice. Um, recovery, on the other hand, is very much a choice and you have to choose every single day over and over and over and over um, to choose recovery and that is painful. That is painfully hard. And so I think I was fumigated with stigma before and even when I was recently diagnosed and the more I go about advocacy and learning from my um, peers and other influencers on Instagram that have really, really benefited um, my knowledge and as I have been able to sit back and kind of listen to their stories and their experiences, my knowledge of eating disorders has only grown um, since I considered myself fully recovered. Yeah, I think there's something really special about learning about eating disorders through listening to other stories. Like, I, you know, when you're in treatment, you get minimal education about eating disorders and what they entail. 
but I feel like the the best way to really be able to understand to the best of your ability is to listen to someone who's actually gone through it and that's like the beauty of social media um in terms of learning about eating disorders I think right and and I mean I someone listening is probably like turning to social media especially in regards for eating disorders is probably the weirdest piece of advice that someone could be giving and it's it's true (laughs) um and there is very much a lot of false information out there i'm sure and there i'm sure there are individuals on social media especially spreading information that is very not true or very triggering um to individuals that are in recovery but finding accounts and finding individuals um, that are therapists, that are licensed, that are life coaches, that are motivational speakers, that are authors, that are podcast hosts, that have been through the process. A lot of individuals in um, the community and a lot of individuals that help with treatment, such as nurses or dietitians or therapists, have also been in the position of the, the client or the patient struggling with an eating disorder. And so they have the background and they know the personal experience and and they're willing to oftentimes share that and to be vulnerable with those in, with the individuals that are that are reading and listening from them and um, spreading free education just and and giving so much of themselves to a community that is just ready to learn and um, I think that if individuals take advantage of that it can do absolute wonders for the world that we live in yeah I agree completely so on social media you talk a little bit about orthorexia so can you talk about like your experience with that when when you sort of learned about what orthorexia is and you know how it applies to your eating disorder yeah so obviously when I was first diagnosed I was diagnosed with anorexia that was my official diagnosis and orthorexia still today is not a recognized mental illness in the DSM-5 um Hopefully, eventually, it will be just for insurance and treatment purposes, but um, otherwise, just spreading awareness about it is is key. Um, and the first time I ever heard of orthorexia was from my, my mom and uh, my dad. They did some research. They were trying their best to understand where I was coming from. And so they were reading a, t- a ton of information online about what it's like to live with an eating disorder, wh- how best to help someone that's going through eating disorder treatment, um, and all of this information because they just weren't familiar with it. And and I think that they both have a, a really good understanding now. I don't think they'll ever know quite as much as I do just because they haven't experienced it. But I think they know just about as well as they can without having gone through it what an eating disorder is like. And uh, they definitely put in the time to learn that. And and somewhere along the process, probably a month or two into my recovery, they stumbled across information about orthorexia. And they they asked me and they were like, hey, Lexi, we I don't, we were already talking, I, I think, and we were on their, their bed in, in the master bedroom and um, kind of just laying on the bed and they had their iPad there and they said, we, my mom said, we came, we came across this and she said, as I was reading this, she thought to herself, this sounds like my Lexi girl. 
this sounds like what she's going through. And so she read me some of the things that it was an obsession with health, that it was focused on quantities, that it didn't stem from body image, but that it stemmed from um, just this health obsession, that there was exercise, compulsive exercise, um, obsessive counting and tracking, um, focused on weight and numbers, macros, calories, um, all of that. And, and in my mind, I was just going, yes, yes, this is what it's like for me. This is exactly what it's like for me. I never woke up and said, I don't like my body. I'm not going to eat. And and that's, I mean, that isn't what anorexia is either. But I do think that there is a difference. Um, if it's its own eating disorder, great. If it's a subcategory of anorexia, great. But whatever it is, there's definitely a distinction. And I think anorexia is oftentimes a much more qualitative as far as like, body image is concerned or eating is concerned and then orthorexia is much more quantitative it's much more about the numbers the specific number that you weigh rather than how your body is just looking um or more about the calories or the macros or the protein or whatever it is in a certain food rather than just is this food healthy versus unhealthy quote unquote or is this a lot of food versus a little bit amount of food rather than like with orthorexia where it'd be like is this half a cup is this one cup um and so i think that there are some some subtle differences there treatment as far as treatment is concerned treatment is roughly the same um as of now i don't know if more research will come about that it'll there'll be uh, more ideas and more education surrounding treatment for orthorexia but to my knowledge Treatment for anorexia and orthorexia are about sixes. And for me, I was treated for anorexia. I consider myself to have had an orthorexia slash anorexia eating disorder, and I have reached full recovery. So the, the treatment process um, for an eating disorder is, is fairly similar regardless. Um, but learning about orthorexia was very validating to me and it was very um, eye-opening to just understand, oh my gosh, I'm not the first person and I'm probably not the last to have experienced this. And unfortunately, I mean, I could talk about orthorexia for, for days. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how long you need this podcast to be, but I, I could seriously be here for days. And um, I think it's just becoming almost popular and trendy and... You know, you see the fitness influencers that are promoting the PB Fit and the protein shakes and the kale diets and whatever else. And our world is so consumed with this diet culture and uh, this drive for fitness and this this striving for health, which is great. Um, but then there comes a point when it becomes toxic and it becomes obsessive and it becomes less healthy <laughs> than uh, you ever wanted it to be. And even with wellness, like we start talking now about wellness culture and how there are certain diets, certain industries that are hiding behind the name of wellness when it's not real wellness anymore. It's turning into an obsession. It's turning into orthorexia. It's turning into this diet culture. It's turning into... Um, just dieting and menting, messing up uh, individuals' mentalities and and their bodies and, and ultimately their health and their happiness. Yeah, it's just everywhere, uh, diet culture. And I think when I first heard about 
um, orthorexia. It was, it was, which is why I'm like really glad to be talking to you about it so I can learn more. But I was like, according to like the criteria for orthorexia, I feel like there's so many people who could fall under that category of having this. And I mean, especially in the culture that's in America, disordered eating is so normal. And I feel like, especially in the past few years, there is a lot of this healthy, clean eating being pushed, mm-hmm. especially by like really mainstream celebrities. And so for me, like orthorexia right now is something that's like for people who are already vulnerable to eating disorders, that's like one of the most like vulnerable pathways to like develop an eating disorder because it's literally being like shoved in our faces all the time. Right. And I think what's hard about it is because orthorexia is somewhere in the gray area. It's not, if you just looked at someone, you wouldn't think, oh my gosh, they have an extreme eating disorder. But then it's it's not healthy either. And so it's finding this, this subtle balance between not leaning into too much health obsession and staying away from um, like this unhealthy eating. And, and so it's finding that middle ground and... And I, I wonder how many individuals are out there struggling with orthorexia and A, have no idea what it is or what, it, what to call it, or B, don't have any idea what to do, or C, think it's completely normal and that their struggles are invalid. And um, I wonder if, if everyone knew about what orthorexia was, how different our society would be. And I think individuals are making it their career. They're making a career out of orthorexia. And they're they're promoting they're they're creating industries out of orthorexia. It's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see um, the ignorance, I guess, um, of society and and how willing, how far we're willing to go to achieve the perfect body or the perfect health or the perfect whatever. And, and it, it's just heartbreaking, but I also think that there is so much hope, and I think my story is one of hope as well, that, you know, it doesn't have to be that way forever, and that intuitive eating is a thing, and that health at every size is a thing, and the eating disorder recovery is a thing, and treatment is a thing, and it's, it's a blessed thing, and um, it's a very hopeful thing, and so that's something that I have come here to spread and to kind of uh, shed awareness on. Yeah, and I think, again... Uh, just conversations like these and just uh, especially what you do on social media just educating about these uh, you know eating disorders but also just mental illness and mental health in general is really going to help get you know these types of conversation be mainstream and so kind of like expanding on that we talked a little bit about uh, social media and how you know, you've used it to help in your journey. Um, And right now you have a very, like, um, like your Instagram is very, you have, like, a very consistent, uh, like, way you post, and it's very informative. Um, So I'm wondering, like, what prompted you to start, um, you know, 
advocacy work on social media and how has it also just helped you in general? Yeah, so I when I jumped on social media back in the day, it was just for my personal like my personal account. And mm-hmm. um then I I kind of had like a I had seen other like religious accounts like where people posted like spiritual quotes and I was like, "Oh, that's cool. I'm going to do that." So I did that for like 5 years. Um so I was very very familiar with Instagram and <laughs> looking back at those posts, I cringe because of my graphic design skills or just like the things I said or just like whatever, but uh I have since retired that account and um I was talking to one of my good friends who Uh, happens to also be on Instagram. Her name is Sophie Baker. She's a great, great individual. She um, does a lot of pageantry through the Miss America organization, and she has a social impact initiative as well about social media in particular and finding your filter. And um, so shout out to her. I absolutely adore what she does. And she came to me one time. We went to school together, and she said, Lexi, I had already started motivational speaking at this point and and really starting to grow my dreams um, of mental health counseling. And she was like, why don't you get on Instagram? And I was like, what would I say? Like, what would I post? Why? I, I wouldn't have enough to say or enough to do or people wouldn't be interested and, and on and on and on. And then I, it kind of started stirring inside me and I'm like, ah, maybe, maybe I kept pushing it off. And then I'm eventually come to the conclusion. I'm like, no, no, no. Everything that I have to say has already been said in some way or another. And the information is already out there between a variety of people. So why do I need to start an Instagram page? Like just no. And so pushed it off again and again and again. And eventually I was like, you know what? Why not? (laughs) Like, what do I have to lose? And so I started my page, which is at every ounce dot of strength on Instagram. And I chose that name because of a letter I had written to my eating disorder. And I wrote to my eating disorder in December of 2017 saying, I have had, basically I've had enough and you literally almost killed me. You've been a best friend, uh, but you've put me through hell. And, uh... I will fight every single day with any ounce of strength that I can find and I'll do it again the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day until you understand that I want to recover. And so that's where I got the name inspiration for my account and kind of the brand that I have started to create. And so um, every ounce of strength has become my life. It is, it's so great. And um, I have learned so much from Instagram and, and being on social media, I have connected with people that I had no idea exist before. Who knew Tiffany Rowe would become my, like, best role model? Who knew that people like Sarah Nicole Landry is someone that I look up to so much? I had no idea that they even existed, and I've learned so much from them and thousands of others, and um, my knowledge of mental health and of eating disorders, that has honestly been my number one educational tool, (laughs) which as a psychology student is kind of sad but uh (laughs) it's true so um I mean if you if you so want to you could go stalk my Instagram and go follow every single person I follow and I I promise you will learn absolutely great and wonderful things but um hopping on social media has been so such a blessing for me one thing that I do sometimes warn is that I will come across what I call recovery accounts versus recovered 
accounts. So my account is a recovered account. I'm recovered and I'm helping other individuals through recovery. Um, I'm spreading awareness. I didn't start my account until after I was fully recovered. There are some individuals that have an Instagram page and they are still in the midst of their recovery. And I question if that's okay for them and for their followers, because for them, there are things that they could come across that is triggering. There's things that could push them back in their recovery. And there are things that if you're only recovering for a social media platform, is it real recovery? Is it lasting recovery? And then there's other things that they could be posting that is triggering to followers that is inform, like just not correct information um, and, and different things like that. And so I caution uh, people creating in recovery accounts or following in recovery accounts um, and, and, and trying to steer clear of those. As much as my heart goes out to those individuals, I don't know if that's best. Um, and and I, I think that I would have said very triggering things when I was in recovery to social media um, if that was my outlet. And so I do warn against that, especially for eating disorders and mental health. But overall, I think social media can be such a thing for good. And um, like I said before, I've had a personal account. And if I'm being honest, I don't check it a lot because I don't really care. Like the people that I'm close to, I know what they're up to. I know what they're doing. I know how they are. And I don't really care (laughs) to see some old friend from high school quote-unquote friend from high school that is in the Bahamas. (laughs) I have other things that are going on and I have other things going for me and I don't need to sit and stew and worry about them or what my life doesn't look like. And so I can see the negative of social media. I can totally see and I have to be aware of that in myself when I do check my personal Instagram. But uh, the Every Ounce page I have filled with so much goodness and the people I follow my feed is the most uplifting thing you will ever come across. Um, and so I love the people that I follow and I love interacting with them and, and it's become a lifesaver for me and my future career. Yeah, that's great. I think especially when you really filter your feed and, you know, like you were saying, like not trying to be too hung up on what you know, people you used to have relationships with are doing and, like, comparing yourself to them. I think for me, having, like, my podcast, um, my podcast Instagram page is, like, so much, like, less stressful than my, like, personal page, sorry, where I'm, like, constantly feeling like I have to check up on what everyone's doing and, like, comparing myself to what everyone else is doing. So there's something really um, beneficial about really filtering your social media page and making it more centered around, like you were saying, like uplifting you as opposed to kind of being stuck in the past around what other people are doing. Mm, For sure. And I think knowing that you can mute people, (laughs) that you can unfollow people is the best advice ever and that you're not required to follow anyone. I I still remember the first story I ever posted uh, was a quote about unfollowing. And it's so weird that that would be the first thing that I post. But um, the, the whole time I've been on Instagram, I've always kind of been like, you know, what? if my account is not what's best for you, don't follow me. If it was best for you for a time and now it's not, don't follow me. If you're comparing yourself to me and it's not working for you, don't follow me. 
I would rather you do that than follow me and me have a bajillion followers and uh, be doing no good. So I think um, taking that into consideration as well is is super um, important for individuals that are in recovery. All right, so last couple of questions. Um, one thing that I've been asking people is, like, what is one thing that you wish you knew about, you know, what you're going through? Um, and what's something that you wish more people knew? So for you, what's one thing you wish more people knew about um, orthorexia or just eating disorders in general? And what's one thing that you wish you knew at the beginning of your journey? Oh, gosh, I think for me, I wish I knew at the beginning that it would be so worth it. And I wish I could see just how great life was like without an eating disorder um, because I would have fought even harder than I did. And um, recognizing that if recovery wasn't worth it, there wouldn't be recovered people out there. There wouldn't be recovered health professionals. There wouldn't be treatment. There wouldn't be anything. And so it has to be worth it. Logically, it has to be worth it. And um, it's, it is, it's so worth it. And recovery is so very real. Some people will tell you that it'll always be a part of your life, that it's a chronic illness, that this is something that you'll deal with for forever. And I call BS on that because I am standing living proof that it doesn't have to be. And I have no doubt that just for some individuals that have struggled for years or decades, it might be a lot harder to get there. I understand that. But I like to think that full recovery is available and possible to every individual. And that's what I wish I knew at the beginning because uh, at, when I was first diagnosed, I thought that I would be permanently branded with mental illness and an eating disorder. And it's just not the case. Recovery is so, so, so very real. And I think as far as what I wish other people knew about orthorexia in particular, I wish they knew that eating disorders don't discriminate. I wish they knew that anybody of any age, any ethnicity, any gender, any religion can develop an eating disorder. Um, nobody is immune. And um, sometimes I wish that it only affected one type of person because then we'd have a lot narrower of a of a you know category to warn and to look at and to to have to provide treatment for but unfortunately it doesn't discriminate and um neither should treatment and i think that that's important as well that everyone deserves is worthy of treatment and is deserving of healing and um regardless of again religion ethnicity gender um, I don't care if you are gay. I don't care if you are Native American. I don't care if you are Asian. I don't care if you are Muslim. I don't care if you have an eating disorder. All I care is that you have treatment available to you. Um, and I wish that people understood that about eating disorders. Um, and then specifically about orthorexia, I wish people just knew what it was. I wish people knew what it was and I wish they knew how prominent it was because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. When I walk around college campuses, there it is. When I'm at work, there it is. When I'm uh, on social media, there it is. I see it everywhere. I see diet culture everywhere. And it's only because I've been through what I've been through that I recognize it. But I hope 
that I can allow other people to start opening their their eyes and to start recognizing what I can recognize without having to go through what I've gone through. Um, and and I, I pray that that's the case. Yeah, I agree with all the points you made, especially about just that everyone is deserving of treatment and everyone should be able to get treatment. I think that's something in mental health treatment in general, it's an issue, but it's a huge issue in eating disorder treatment. Right. Um, Especially for people who don't fit the stereotypical embodiment of what an eating disorder is. Yeah, I would say particularly for men and people Mm. of color. Those are the two big categories that kind of get hit hard um, with discriminating access to treatment. Yeah, I agree. And again, more conversations like this, more of, you know, people like us sharing our stories and educating online, I think that'll get us to slowly but surely to a point where there's less discrimination against, um, you know, men, people of color, people in marginalized bodies to be able to get the care they deserve and they need. Yeah. Okay, so lastly, how can my audience and I stay up to date with you and the work that you do? The best way to stay up to date with me is on Instagram. That's kind of the main hub of everything I do. Everything is linked and connected there. My Instagram is at every ounce dot of strength. And um, my, I also have a podcast as well. So if you're interested in podcasts, my podcast is just called the Every Ounce Podcast. And that's available on Spotify, Google, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Great. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you, you know, sharing so much of your story and um, a lot of your insight. I think this will be really helpful for people to hear. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Students of Mind. Please be sure to go to the description of this episode to find links to Sarah and Lexi's websites and social media. Both provide a lot of information about orthorexia and eating disorders in general, so I would strongly encourage you check them out so you can learn more. As always, if you want to follow myself and the rest of the Students of Mind team, our links are always listed in the description as well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the show. That way we can get all of this information and insight into more ears. Thank you again for listening. I hope you learned something new and I will see you next time. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. 
Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.